Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. We're excited to welcome a good friend, Andrew Watts, to the show today. Andrew is an experienced IT leader and currently serves as the Chief Information Officer at Relativity. As CIO, Andrew provides leadership in building and supporting Relativity's information technology, along with governance and compliance processes. Andrew has more than 20 years of experience in IT. Prior to joining Relativity in 2016, he served as a director of IT at Morningstar, an investment research and management firm. At Morningstar, he oversaw a 200-person IT department, led the information technology aspects of 30 acquisitions and two divestitures, and implemented both major system enhancements and significant technology and security improvements. Before moving to Chicago, Andrew held several IT positions in Australia, his home country. Andrew holds a computer science degree from the University of Technology in Sydney. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you both. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Andrew, really excited about having you on. Obviously, uh, relativity and and how significant it is to the technology landscape in, in Chicago, uh, the Midwest, and and nationally, uh, but obviously uh, very important to Chicago. Uh, long history, understand the background. But for some of our listeners who don't, you know, would you mind sharing? You know, what is relativity? You know, what what market does it serve? What kind of customers? Uh, and maybe a little bit of the background of the history. Yeah, happy to do that. So first and foremost, Relativity is a company. Uh, we're a software company headquartered and founded here in Chicago by Andrew Sager, who's our chairman uh, and uh, has long run the business previously under the uh, brand Kura and rebranded a few years ago to take on the name of our flagship product, Relativity. Uh, we sell Relativity. Relativity One and Relativity Trace. Those are our three core products serving the e-discovery space, which is a space if the listeners are not familiar in the legal industry that is involved when corporations or the government, regulators, uh, law firms are involved in litigation or disputes between them and need to manage large amounts of unstructured data to discover facts and information and share it or exchange it with other parties or the courts uh, or in the process of of settling matters between the organizations. Uh, You can imagine, for example, um, two companies in in a law dispute needing to exchange large amounts of physical documents once upon a time or find treasured information in those documents um, in physical environments. Uh, We do that in the digital landscape. So uh, documents, emails, PDFs, text exchanges, and so on and so forth. Uh, Relativity has been around as a product for 10 plus years and has solved that problem largely with organizations uh, in their own premise data centers using a large number of partners that we have who provide additional expertise beyond just the software to solve those problems. And more recently, we're selling Relativity One, which is a cloud version of that product. And then Relativity Trace is a product that we've brought to market that seeks to solve 
or look out for problems before they become litigation matters. So it is a surveillance product that helps organizations like financial services companies look out for uh, malicious or unintended um, activities that employees might be doing that could cause problems for organizations. So there's a few products there that are in our, in our sweet spot for our customers. The legal marketplace that we serve includes service providers who take our software and run it on behalf of others, law firms who may uh, run it directly themselves for the same purposes, corporations who might deal with a lot of this type of data and uh, are looking for a platform to manage the data. And as I said, obviously, some financial services, organizations, governments, regulators, and so on. We have about 1,200 employees worldwide. We're headquartered in Chicago. About uh, a thousand of our employees are in Chicago. The other employees that we have are in places such as Krakow, Poland, London, UK, Hong Kong, um, Sydney and Melbourne, Australia, um, and then other employees around North America and uh, people who work remotely in our business. So it sounds like you sit right there in the middle, a very good intersection of a lot of elements involving the legal industry, you know, working with law firms and various financial services and, and, you know, government organizations. I'd really love to get your, your perspective on where you see, you know, the legal industry is obviously very big here in Chicago. It's always been a a sizable uh, niche for different reasons, but uh, some very large legal firms here. Um, Where do you see, the legal industry of the future with all that's going on and the digitization that you've seen over the last decade. Um, how do you see that impacting the, the legal industry as a whole? Sure. So I'll speak to the part of that question that gets to where technology is going and digitization and so on. From the relativity perspective, um, certainly one of the transformations that we believe we're helping lead is organizations being able to take advantage of cloud and the, the just myriad of services and capabilities that um, the concept of infinite scale or elastic scale that the cloud provides can bring to bear. Um, the legal industry as a whole, um, you know, is dealing with some of the most difficult data that's out there. Um, our mission statement is essentially organize data, discover the truth and act on it. And we believe that many of our law firm customers, our partners and the corporations that use our software are doing that every day. So you imagine you have huge amounts of unstructured data and the very fact that it's called unstructured data means it's, it's much more difficult than a, than a database of tables and easy lookup and queries. It's data that uh, is not organized. It is not necessarily set up to be searched easily or for you to find facts in it. And we try to make sense of that uh, and have done for a long time. With the transformation, for example, to cloud, we believe we can bring to bear new and interesting technologies to solve that problem. So um, AI, analytics, automation, um, you know, throwing more compute or more storage or more interesting technology solutions at these problems so that these companies can get to the truth with potentially less people or less time or with greater precision uh, to solve disputes faster or to help regulators do the same type of thing faster. Um, What I think is 
the the bigger picture there is as as we for example are helping people make the move to leverage cloud technology like the rest of most corporations and organizations in the world the legal industry is also faced with rapid digitization not least of all um, recently sped up by COVID-19 and organizations are increasingly moving away from old processes, manual ways of doing things to a world where many of our systems and data are connected or need to be connected. They are, uh, whether they're in cloud or in, in private data centers, uh, increasingly demanded by the smart, creative, digitally minded employees that we all have. Uh, and the places where interesting information is stored is rapidly changing. So take, for example, once upon a time, information was stored in paper versions printed in, and delivered in courtrooms that moved to, you know, Microsoft Word documents or WordPerfect or Lotus one, two, three documents. And it was stored in people's uh, file servers in, in a, in a, in a closet in an office. And that moved to data centers today. Not only is the information uh, in those places and more, uh, but we're increasingly seeing interesting conversations happen through text or Zoom or online video. Uh, we're seeing more of the work product that gets created by organizations, uh, including small task-based messages that contain information of truth about how digital workers do things. So. It could be that they store a comment about a choice they're making in a ticket in a system somewhere, or they are, you know, moving between modalities. They'll text, then they'll email, then they'll put a ticket uh, comment somewhere. And all three of those things are interesting to the matter at hand, but they're not all on the same platform and they're not easy to find. And so where we think legal technology is going is more complexity, more places data is stored, more need to make sense of the data. And uh, lawyers, law firms, corporations, the partner companies that we work with and our company are all gearing up to solve that growth of data, growth of number of places people store and create data, growth of the number of uh, tools and technologies people use to interact with each other and conduct their business in, in this century and dealing with, uh, you know, environmental issues that we're all dealing with in the world like, like COVID-19 and how it forces us to work differently and in new and interesting ways. Um, speaking of, just curious how this has impacted, you know, you working with your teams and how that's impacted maybe new hires and, and trying to integrate them into the culture and uh, really build relationships. Yeah, a few different areas there where that's changed for us uh, and I think is changing for the industry as well. So first and foremost, over the last few years, as we have um, launched our cloud product uh, and, and added new and different capabilities, we've certainly had to um, hire people or uh, help people who we already had in our business learn new and additional skills related to cloud technologies, uh, AI automation, information security, governance, um, I would say also more digital technology. So, you know, you can't necessarily have one person who's good at building a technology in a software development environment for connecting to a file server. 
um, pivot immediately to to knowing how to extract that data from uh, a tool like uh, an iPhone. There's a different process you go through and so on. Um, so we've had to reskill and and become very good at tapping the community in Chicago and elsewhere for uh, people that are net additional to our business who have a different skill set there. We've also had to help our customers learn how then to use our tools and other tools to navigate those types of changes and work with other types of partners like ISV partners we have or soft, other software vendors who help integrate that type of data into our platform and, and help educate the whole industry on how to continue moving forward. And we like to think we lead in that. So for example, we're usually talking to our customers about those capabilities in advance of the whole industry moving that way. We try to bring those capabilities to market before our customers need them for everything they do. Rather, we try to bring them to market as they're nascent so that they're there when the customers are seeing them en masse, so to speak. Um, additionally, with things such as COVID-19 in the world that we sort of entered right now, um, it's an interesting analogy to the first thing. So you move to an online world and a work from home kind of uh, parameter for an individual contributor who's already an employee. And it's not, you know, the best thing in the world, but they can make the transition. They might already be set up and have their laptop and have the right tools. A new employee who's joining your company, you know, there's a whole new set of challenges. They don't, they can't walk the hallways. Uh, they can't walk to, into reception. They don't necessarily uh, know all the people and can't have lunch with them or, or sit with them after a meeting and get to know them. And so what we've had to do is try to make sure, and we're still working on this ourselves inside of our company, that our collaboration tools and, and other uh, digital tools allow for people to get to know the company, get to know their colleagues, um, allow for some of that organic, um, you know, connectivity to happen between people, human to human contact. And we are hearing that the industry that we're in, as well as uh, the, the industry that, uh, you know, we help serve more broadly, all corporations are dealing with those problems. Um, if anything, what's happened is it's been an accelerator for what I was talking about before, which is this move to video conferencing, audio conferencing, chat, um, digital collaboration systems. And uh, it's, it, it's a feedback loop that's occurring. So as we move more people to those tools, it creates more of the kinds of data that is more widespread, it's more unstructured, so to speak, and there's more of it to collect and make sense of if you go into a legal matter. Uh, and so in that way, the human experience of, of working in a COVID environment is a driver of the work that uh, our product already helps solve problems for. Uh, and then the other way around, the, the problems that we're solving because they are now solvable, people are more willing to move online and use those tools for things they might not have in the past. They might have had governance, for example, that didn't allow their employees to do that. So it's, it's a very interesting cycle and pattern to be watching right now, this rapid digitization that's happening to our own company, to our customers, uh, and to the marketplace. One of the follow-up questions I have from uh, you know, the legal industry, you know, I, I've worked for large law firms. Uh, sometimes they're a little bit slow to see the value in technology. 
Is that a changing perspective in that industry? Are leaders of these large law firms seeing that uh, this is a an enabler, a tool that they need to get on board with, or is it is it still uh, a bit of a challenge to educate to move to some of these newer things? I think the overwhelmingly quickest answer is yes, and it is happening fairly rapidly. I think to the legal industry. Having said that, like any industry or like any group, there are people out front on the bleeding edge who saw this early. There are people on the far trailing edge who are slow to adopt and change. I think from a couple of different dimensions, you can see where this is. So the law itself is you know, one of the, the oldest institutions around in many democracies and other countries, how the law works and how it is adjudicated and so on has certain patterns and structures and it doesn't change very fast. Uh, and so the practices and procedures that need to be followed in that regard stay fairly stable over time. On the other hand, the practitioners of it and the, the world that gets adjudicated by the law can change very rapidly. And therefore the two things move at sort of almost diametrically opposed um, speeds. What I think that's meant is that for maybe the last decade or two, law firms, corporations and how they participate in the law or how they work with law firms and other practitioners have had a period of stability for how things worked even as they moved into the digital realm. But what that afforded was still significant investment in technology just over a slightly slower pace. More recently, in the last few years, there's been an influx of the need to refresh that technology, update it, uh, and to meet new demands, like has been transitioned through several other industries. Uh, I was in financial services and before that in telecommunications, and both of those industries, I think, moved faster to cloud technology, for example, in some cases, not for everything, but in some cases. The legal industry, I think, right now has investment finding its way into the technology teams, the IT teams, the e-discovery teams. One, because of the need to keep up. That's definitely part of it. Another reason is because the the courts and the legal systems themselves are adopting to meet the needs of of the modern world. The third thing I think is that um, law firms themselves are, uh, in some cases at least, moving out of or transitioning from partnership models to corporation models and they're seeing consolidation in that marketplace and there is a changing set of uh, drivers that some of them have for how they're building and running their businesses um, for good reasons for most of them uh, consolidation helps with scale helps with globalization um, and it does obviously help with you know achieving what most companies are out to achieve, which is profitability and, and, and revenue growth and things like that. And Andrew, you've been there now for about four years. What what are some of the biggest surprises or, or biggest changes that you've encountered? I was lucky enough to join Relativity as it was launching Relativity One. And as a IT leader, was only uh, partially involved in that to begin with. And so I've been very fortunate to become more involved with Relativity One and our customers' journey to using cloud and and seeing digitization happen over the last four years. And that's been tremendous to work with customers, help them make that choice, 
um, see the different stages of the journey that different customers are on and, and that some are bleeding edge and some are trailing edge and, and why and so on and, and really helping them make the right decision for them at the right time. I think for me, what's been amazing is just how complex the world of e-discovery is uh, and how many interesting problems there are to solve. If you think about the mix of skills you need to be savvy about the law, as well as savvy about uh, bleeding edge technology and how to organize data, you've got a really interesting community of customers who really straddle those two worlds very nicely. Um, and that's not always common in a lot of roles you get to fill inside of companies. Oftentimes you, you take a role in a company and you're very functionally focused on just one thing or one skill or one profession. Uh, and e-discovery to me at least represents two really interesting professions that are coming together to solve really interesting problems. Um, I, I also think that how the landscape has changed from being somewhat resistant to moving into cloud or other technologies that are possible in a more cloud-based world to now how much acceptance there is and how much more of the investment is going towards those types of technologies has been a pretty quick pace compared to the places I had been before. So I actually think if all things were equal, I, I think the legal industry is actually probably moving at least as fast as other industries have moved, if not faster, maybe benefiting a little bit from the fact that other industries have been through it first, uh, maybe benefiting from the fact that things like COVID-19 have accelerated everything, but whichever one it is for different companies, the, the pace of change is exciting to watch and, and to be a part of. So one of the things that we talked about before was as you know you joined Relativity and you know moving into the, that cloud product and and Conway's law and how you organize your teams and things of that nature of you know how you organize your team is how you build software and and I heard you mention cloud quite a few times uh, when talking about uh, the various industries so there's kind of two parts of like moving from you know that organization that's growing. And, you know, it's in its first five years, five, six years, and then moving to getting to something that's ready for substantial growth, right? How important was cloud for that to be an enabler for that to occur? That's a great question. Um, I'll answer it from inside out and then outside in, if that makes sense. I was very lucky to join an organization in Kekura that became Relativity that was already highly cloud enabled itself. So... As a corporation, we already were very firm in our belief that using software as a service products and platforms was the right way to do things. There was very little back office infrastructure, not a lot of uh, data center infrastructure that uh, I had to come in and work with my new IT team to manage. We had already largely chosen the large software as a service players like Salesforce, um, managed versions of other products that really meant that our IT team was able to be smaller and more agile and focus on the data, the integrations and the business use cases. And I think for our company, that allowed us to scale more rapidly, allow for our employees to be more um, agile in how they acted because we didn't 
have a whole layer of things we had to manage. We didn't necessarily have to manage upgrades of software, security of all that software, but we did have to be good at managing our vendor or vendors. And, and, and we had to be good at manipulating data and building integrations and so on. So that gave us an edge, I think, to move then as our company decided that it was ready to do something different, which was go from being a packaged software company to also being a cloud company. From outside looking in, we had to work on our interaction with our customers to build trust that they were going to be able to put their operational requirements and needs in our hands. And so they had to uh, see that we were ready to become an operator of technology, not just a builder of technology. And so where those two things came together is that we were able to speak to what we did and how we ran our own technology. We were able to speak to the experiences that we had had working very closely with service providers who ran Relativity and that we understood what it meant to operate Relativity One, working with our partner, Microsoft, built on the Azure platform in such a way that they could have that trust in us. So, uh, you know, I won't go through all the steps, but for example, one of those was stability and availability. It's table stakes. Customers need for that to just work. Second one was security. We had to show the customers that we were willing to invest at least as much, if not a lot more, into information security, governance, disaster recovery, and so on, as they had built in their own data centers. Another was to talk about how quickly we could bring innovation to market, how quickly could we change the software, uh, add a new capability, or significantly um, change the capabilities that were already there. And so what's happened over time is the trust has built, more customers are putting their data into our cloud product. We are speeding up the innovation cycle, bringing new capabilities to market. We are adding to the security and playing a bigger part in helping those companies uh, understand the security landscape and the cybersecurity challenges that are out there. And of course, we're still making sure that we improve and uh, bring to the marketplace greater scope globally, more data centers where we run the product. Um, higher levels of accountability for availability and stability, disaster recovery, uh, because our customers are increasingly um, demanding that all as as table stakes, where originally table stakes was just, can you operate it? Um, so there's quite a bit of difference there between the two. So, you know, the, the move to cloud is easy to say, but as you asked the question and, and I answered it, 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 there's a lot of moving parts to make it happen because you're really transforming the way people work and uh, change management is hard. I also, the change from reorganizing teams, reorganizing the organization, how, how you're building, how the, how the company works. Um, there's also that transition of a startup mentality to a growth enterprise mentality, not with the idea that like you're, uh, we had a, a one of my favorite authors on before uh, who wrote a book called Predictable Success, and he he details the arc of every organization from early startup to fun to whitewater to predictable success. And one of those concepts is bringing in, you know, the dreaded word of managers or management or structure, right? Where there's that at the very beginning, 
you almost need a lack of structure because you're trying to figure things out, right? And there's it's more of an exploration and experimentation. Um, from your perspective, as as you know, you've seen the growth and the transitions. What are the key elements for the visionary elements that that you know the part that wants to do innovation and the part that knows we have to operate a business? What is what do you think is critical to make those two forces work together well? It's a great question. I think I'm really lucky to be surrounded by currently a peer group. And I was very lucky when I started a relativity to be surrounded by a peer group who, first of all, understood your question. What, what does it take to be a successful small company that can become a successful large company? Um, I mentioned Andrew, the founder and chairman of our company. He uh, has introduced those of us on his team to um, another book similar to possibly the one you were mentioning called The Breakthrough Company. And in that book, it talks about what it takes to go through these various stages. And I think it's fair to say we've all studied elements of what's in that to have a common view of you are not the same company when you are potentially earning $50 million of revenue that you might be when you're earning $500 million of revenue and so on and so on and so on. In my opinion, um, first of all, it takes the realization that that, that is true. I, I think that some companies either learn that the very hard way and go through a lot of mistakes before they get to the other side. Um, so certainly you've got a leg up, in my opinion, if you accept the wisdom that's out there, which there's plenty of it these days. Um, and then the second of all, if you, if you seek the right kind of counsel and establishment to move from one to the next. So... Andrew is now our executive chairman. Last year, uh, and it's been 12 months now, he invited Mike Gamson, who is ex of LinkedIn, to become our new CEO. And he, Mike currently leads our executive team. In addition to Mike, we have had some new executive talent join our executive team. Uh, myself, four years ago, some before me, but the accumulation of that talent is now geared to the company we are running both today and we're looking to run for, let's say, the next four to five years. And so you have people there who are skilled at the things that we will need, not just for yesterday, but obviously well into the future. And I think having the right people leading the company is, is certainly um, one element. Another element is, of course, then, as you said, um, managers at all levels. You've got to have... The, the talent that doesn't just have today's skills, but has some insight and experience into what it's going to be that the company needs two years, four years, and further down the track to be building out scalable, efficient, productive processes to build the right product for your customers. Uh, otherwise, you're doing things inefficiently. You're not getting them done as quickly as you could productively, um, and, and it's difficult to you know, find success. Insofar as the dynamic then between the entrepreneur culture and the larger company culture, uh, it's a balance. And I think where we have uh, found a good balance for our company is that the industry itself is changing rapidly, which means we have to adopt and deliver the right kind of information, capabilities, subject matter expertise to our customers. They're very demanding of us, and that's great. We get to work in a growing, expanding marketplace. Second thing is that 
um, you've got to have, especially as a software company like we are, a significant amount of people with diversity, diversity of ideas, diversity of backgrounds, literally diversity of uh, ethnicity, cultural backgrounds, global location that they work from, uh, their work experience and their life experiences to continue to have new and interesting ideas happening in that cauldron that is sort of the entrepreneur's world that um, you had when you were a small company, lots of people coming together to do things rapidly, and people who have worked in companies that are larger or who are willing to work out what the processes and procedures and governance that you need for the long term are. Otherwise, there's a stress that would exist between the two where those teams of people just wouldn't be on the same page. Um, so at Relativity, I think what we found is having everybody be on the same page about the, the end state means that those who are working in our product and innovation space and those who are working in the sort of strictest spaces in our business, like uh, our legal team or our information security team or our finance team, are all on the same page about where we're headed. And so the dynamic is very healthy at our company. That's awesome, right? Keeping everybody on the same page. I agree. That That is absolutely the biggest challenge and the biggest reward, right? If you can keep everybody on the same page and there's clarity around purpose, mission, it gives you the opportunity that when you must pivot or change direction or adjust, there's at least a shared expectation of what was and what is now. From your perspective and how you handle your teams, what do you think is the most effective discipline or thing, your approach, um, whatever your your your? How do you how do you keep everybody on the same page? What what's the thing you think is the most powerful thing that you you do? It's a really good question. I think for today's relativity, it is leading our people as the priority thing that all of our managers and leaders in the company do. So for the past uh, several years, we've been really talking about the idea of talent first and making sure that our employees have all the information they need, high context of what it is we're doing as a business. So who are our customers? What products are we bringing to market? What are the projects that are our priority? What is our, what is our goal? What is the mission of the company and and what are some of the tasks that we need to get done so that employees can can perform? They they come to work and they can carry out their particular tasks, mission, projects, use their professional skills and experience in a highly productive way. It means a, a list of things under the covers of what the label says. You know, it's high communication, high transparency, high context a lot of collaboration, a lot of time spent together versus spent in silos or or other versus any of those bullet points. To me, what it means is that I spend as much time as I can with the people who work in the teams that I'm responsible for, asking for feedback, asking if they have what they need to be successful, asking if they are set up for success in, for example, um, this work from home world we find ourselves in. Do you know? Do they have the home situation that is stable? Um, do they have the time to focus? Do they have the right equipment that they need? Uh, do they have all the information they need to 
to know where we're headed as a business. And if not, then you know it's a failing on me as a leader. But I think that makes the biggest difference is really high context and understanding for your employees, looking for the best talent that you can find that thrives in an environment like that, and uh, constantly focusing on the people who do the work that uh, really gets the, the the job done for our customers. And and that's no easy thing. I think we all recognize that as organizations grow, the meetings, right? The meetings grow. And I think one of the critical components is how do you keep those meetings meaningful, right? Because a, a, a well-run structured meeting means all the difference in, in my estimation. And like the, the biggest problems is when everybody's just busy, right? Where it's like, we've got to have meetings to make decisions. Is there something that you do with your team to to create clarity around accountability as opposed to communication and clarity is critical? And then the accountability of like, you don't need to have a meeting to make this decision. This is just your call, right? You don't, you know, and I think that's where I see a lot of wasted effort, right? When we talk about software companies, we're, we're talking about how do we empower our folks to put fingers on keyboards, right? Just like hands-on tools in, in a manufacturing capacity. Is there something that you do to, to strike that balance of like collaboration and, and clarity and at the same point in time, accountability and productivity? It's a really good question. We were speaking before about the uh, tensions that can exist between entrepreneurialism and, and being or getting ready to be a, a larger company and, and how do you balance those things? I think what I think works for the dynamic you specifically said, literally how to run a productive meeting or how to um, make sure that you get things done without maybe having to have people waste time in unproductive situations. Uh, it ties to the earlier question of how do you migrate from being small and scrappy where everybody can sit in the same hundred square feet of space to where people are now globally based and distributed and now working from home as well. The, the answer to the question is, is simple to say, but it's hard to do. But I think it really requires understanding exactly what you said, which is who's accountable for what, who has what decision-making authority, what are the right things that need to be discussed versus decided um, in isolation and so on. So we've been doing a lot of work on that ourselves. In fact, our, with, with the idea of our talent first focus, uh, one of those things is respecting people's time, respecting that one of the things that wastes people's time is when, for example, decision-making rights are not well understood. So how do we put in people's hands the right frameworks or the right understanding of who has the, the decision-making rights? And so we're working on that right now. We, we lead with that at an executive team level and we ask our teams to follow frameworks that are similar um, down to the most discreet level of management and then the individual contributors that work for them um, by doing things such as at the beginning of a meeting, if you have to have one saying, uh, we're here today because we need to reach a decision. Here's who the decision maker is. Here's who is being asked to give input or who's being asked to agree to the decision or recommend or will be accountable to deliver the solution. Um, and there's frameworks out there that you can implement like that. I won't discuss the specific ones we're using right here and now, but 
if you don't have them or if you still rely on meetings or emails to get all that done, um, you probably are slowing yourself down and it's, it's worth investing in some of these ideas of the right kind without getting too process heavy so that you've got just the right amount of uh, human um, connectivity and process to help you uh, do what you do every day. I really like that phrase, what needs to be discussed and what needs to be decided. I'm definitely going to steal that one. I'll footnote you as best as I can, but I'm definitely going to steal that one. And Andrew, you make all of this sound so easy and it's a very difficult process. What are you doing to, I guess, keep active um, in this isolation? I know you're an avid photographer. Is that something that you're still involved in? I am. It's one of my hobbies. Um, I definitely get out there when I can. Always have my phone in my pocket, if not my um, larger camera with me when I go and travel. And, and particularly, you know, now that it's the summer here in Chicago, spending time outdoors is a big part of everybody's, I think, escape because of how much we're all on video conferences and in our emails and things like that. Uh, other hobbies I've picked up, I think, related to particularly the work from home change is a lot of walking. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean sort of just going for a walk. I, I've actually invested in sort of a hiking slash urban hiking type of um, hobby where I'm trying to see different parts of Chicago on foot and enjoy that and combine that with the photography. Uh, bicycling is another one, uh, which can also nicely get packaged up with photography and walking. Um, really enjoying that right now with the weather. Um, as far as professionally, um, trying as best as I can and trying to the extent that the, the teams that work at Relativity are able to, to have a little bit of normalcy with the virtual catch-ups with people for lunch or a virtual coffee or a virtual hallway chat. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people are talking about virtual happy hour is the one that sort of is the top of everyone else's list. I I don't drink, so my personal version of that is virtual coffee or virtual, like I said, uh, lunch. I actually did one of those today. Uh, and then additional networking outside of the people who already work at Relativity. So meeting new people um, and, and still continuing to understand what's happening in other businesses here in Chicago and elsewhere so that I can um, you know, have not just the normalcy, but also the, the growing understanding of, of who's out there, um, what talent exists in our marketplace, um, who's just a great contact to add to my network to learn more about our industry or about uh, the, the tech landscape in general. Where would you recommend that we all go hiking um, in the city? So I live on the north side, kind of the intersection between Ravenswood, Wrigleyville, Lincoln Square, and Andersonville. And I highly recommend the old neighborhoods around this area, all the way up as far as Edgewater. Um, beautiful old homes, uh, historic streets and neighborhoods and cemeteries, lakefronts close by, interesting small village type of, of setup that you, you hardly know you're in one of the biggest cities in the world. It's, it's a wonderful kind of area to urban hiking. The other one that I, I quite enjoy right now, and this is maybe a little bit morbid, I suppose, or at least it was a few months ago, was to actually go back down to the loop and walk around while it's dead and empty because it's just a fascinating thing to witness the 
big metropolis of Chicago just empty and vacant of people. I don't know when we'll see that again in our lifetime. So I spent some time doing that as well. I haven't been down there in a while though, so I don't know to what extent it's still empty or it's gotten busier again. Yeah, I haven't personally, uh, this is the longest I've been out of downtown Chicago since I think it was like 22, right? So it's uh, the idea I dawned out on me the other day that it's been three months. Like I went down there to go pick up some stuff at the beginning, but uh, it is, it's odd to think about that. Like uh, I used to go there every day and now I haven't been downtown, you know, I grew up in Mount Prospect, not much changes in Mount Prospect. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, going there is like, oh, the jewel closed, big deal. Right. I have, well, I have another interesting thing for you both. I'll leave you both with this thought for, for later, but also for the listeners. Um, I was talking to some folks the other day about this. If you think about your world in COVID-19 right now, when you do go out and do your urban hiking or you go out for your walk or um, in and around your home environment, you're seeing strangers and people you know with their masks on every single day. When we all go back in behind the curtain, so to speak, like on this uh, setup we've got going right now or on your Zoom calls or your WebExes and whatever, we don't see each other in our masks. So I don't know what anybody at Relativity's mask looks like. I don't know what my mom and dad's mask looks like because they don't wear those and I don't wear mine except when I'm outside. When we're back behind this digital world, we don't see each other in those. So Shelly and Patrick, I don't know what your masks look like and you don't know what mine looks like. I don't know if you're sporting the uh, cheap Target version or the fancy $100 version and so on. But uh, it's, to me, part of the fascination with for example, you know, what does the loop look like right now? Because it's a stark example of how different the world we're living in is and, and how rapidly it changed around us in the last few months. Agreed. Well, I think that's a, a great topic to close on. I, I think it's it definitely is going to be, there's going to be very unique challenges in the future, right? And it's going to test, I think, you know, you bring up the visual recognition cues, the things that are really just innate in who we are as humans and how we interact with each other that's been set into our DNA over the last 20,000, 30,000 years. And now we're operating in an entirely different modality. And obviously that's going to have some huge impacts, but I really can't say enough to say thank you for, for taking the time today to, to join Shelly and I on the, on the podcast here. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you and thanks for running the podcast. It's been great to listen to some of your other podcasts as I've caught up over the last few months. Awesome. Thanks. We also wanted to thank you, uh, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.